This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Jim Silver, professor emeritus from the University of Winnipeg and prolific writer and editor on all issues related to poverty, unionism, and how to build a better world. Our conversation is wide-ranging and talks about Jim's experiences documenting poverty within Winnipeg in its North End and how things have changed for, frankly, the worse over the years. Jim's new book, Scoundrels and Shirkers, is out as of May and explores the history of poverty in Britain, all while trying to answer the question, why has it been so hard to uproot these systems? Jim Silver, welcome. Thanks, Nora. Uh, Nice to talk with you again. First, can you introduce yourself? I live in Winnipeg. I have published uh, quite a number of books with Fernwood. Uh, uh, along with Errol Black, I published a book on labor, which is now in its fourth fourth edition. Uh, and I've published in a couple of other areas, but the major focus of the work that I've done with Fernwood has been on poverty and, uh, you know, the kind of complex racialized poverty that exists in many cities, probably most cities across Canada. Poverty is a major, major problem in Canada. My focus has been on Winnipeg, where poverty is is racialized, it's spatially concentrated, and it is exceptionally uh, damaging. So the, the, the way I've done my work over uh, the past 25 years or so is to work in the community, in what we call here in Winnipeg, the inner city. So I've, I've worked in the inner city uh, alongside uh, various community-based organizations, uh, been involved with them in the work that they're doing, and then have written about that uh, about that work. So for example, I, I worked for about seven years in a large public housing complex in the heart of Winnipeg's North End, a very, very low income uh, area. Uh, and then, and then wrote about uh, wrote about that. Wrote a book about public housing, including Lord Selkirk Park, but including also uh, public housing complexes in Halifax and Toronto and Vancouver. So that's the way I've liked to work. I've liked to um, uh, actually be in the inner city, work with people who are in the inner city day by day doing anti-poverty work and helping them in whatever ways uh, I can, and then uh, also uh, writing about it. So I've written written quite a bit, and I think one of the, one of the things that I've found, I uh, described by the use of the term complex poverty. So I think most people in Canada, when they think of poverty, think, well, you know, poverty means people have low incomes. And of course, that's true. But it's more than that. Um, uh, People have low incomes and as a consequence, uh, very, very often live in bad housing. And there really is a great deal of bad housing. And housing is a major, housing for low income people is a major problem right across the country as more and more people are becoming aware. 
And uh, also along with the bad housing goes poor health. Uh, poor people typically have more health problems than those who are not poor. And we know that uh, poverty correlates with low levels of education. And if you don't succeed in at least getting a high school education, which many people in Winnipeg's inner city uh, don't get, then the likelihood of your being poor yourself uh, is increased when you reach uh, adulthood. And, and poverty is associated with you know, high levels of unemployment and low levels of labor force participation and lots of racism and social exclusion. And people who experience all of these interacting factors uh, tend to internalize their circumstances and uh, often blame themselves just as they are blamed by the broader community. And it creates a, um, you know, a net of poverty from which it's really hard to, really hard to escape. So poverty is a more complicated kind of thing that I think many Canadians uh, appreciate. And I've been able, I think, to, you know, to come to understand that by my direct involvement with people uh, in, in Winnipeg's inner city. I want to come back to the way that you have seen poverty evolve over the years and how you've written about it and been involved in, in, in fighting it. But before I get to that, I'm wondering at what point in your activism or in your, your direct experience and work, did you realize that you had to start writing this down? Did you come to the work expecting to write books or articles or whatever about it? Or did that become apparently necessary through the process of you doing that work? I went into it uh, wanting to understand what was going on in Winnipeg's inner city. I had a long connection with poverty because as a young person, I was a CUSO volunteer in West Africa. I lived in a remote village and taught in a local high school. And many of the people, uh, most of the people in that village were, were poor and there was poverty all around. Um, interestingly, that kind of poverty that people are aware of is, uh, I think the poverty of people in Winnipeg's inner city is, is in most respects worse than the poverty that, that I experienced in, uh, in West Africa. But in any event, um, my involvement in Winnipeg's inner city can, I, I think I see it as a continuation of my experience as a younger person in uh, uh, West Africa as a CUSO volunteer. And I did go in wanting to try to understand and if possible, uh, you know, do some research and write, uh, write about what I was seeing. What, how, how do you make that, uh, that comment or that observation that the poverty that you see in Winnipeg is worse? Well, I think to take an example, people in the village where I lived, were keen to get an education uh, in the belief that getting an education would improve their circumstances. So they were, you know, for the most part, enthusiastic students in the high school where I taught. Um, that is not the case in Winnipeg's inner city uh, very, very often. Um, you know, people, people here people who are caught in this really racialized poverty, um, 
don't have a sense of hopefulness. Uh, oftentimes, they don't believe that their circumstances will be improved. And their experience, particularly those who are Indigenous people, their experience with the educational system has been negative. It's been nothing but negative. And oftentimes, they don't know anybody in their neighborhood or in their family who has benefited from getting an education. So, you know, educational outcomes as a result of all of that are very, very low. And it's that that reproduces the poverty in Winnipeg's inner city or among the things that reproduces the the poverty. Um, And I think also uh, families here, um, families are, many of them are damaged. They're really struggling. In some cases, that's a product of colonialism. Uh, poverty amongst Indigenous people is very, very high in Winnipeg's inner city, but it's not just Indigenous people. It's many people. And they, uh, you know, the the families are really, really damaged. Uh, There's been, as a result of colonialism, a loss of culture, a loss of language. That's not the case in West Africa. Families are healthy. They're thriving. They have low incomes, but they know who they are. They're proud of who they are. And in many respects, live a really, really attractive uh, uh, lifestyle. So I think uh, that that that's it, it's it's for those kinds of reasons that I say I think the poverty in Winnipeg's inner city is even worse than what I experienced anyway in West Africa. In December 1999, the book "Solutions That Work: Fighting Poverty in Winnipeg" was released, and you edited that. Do you ever go back to that book and see where things were in 1999 and compare them to where things are today? I did on one occasion when I worked with uh, Darren Lazubsky to uh, do a sort of an update of the chapter there that was called High and Rising. Um, but I don't, other than that, I don't specifically go back to that book. But I would say that as bad as the picture was, as painted in that book in 1999, it is worse today. Poverty uh, is worse today in Winnipeg's inner city, manifested in many, many important ways. Where, you know, even suburbanites here in Winnipeg today are aware of the fact that there are human beings living in bus shelters living in bus shelters all over all over the city the homelessness is is absolutely apparent to people now uh, the increased degree of random violence is apparent to people today which has its roots I think in this uh, degrading form of poverty that is imposed upon people so uh, you know I I do compare what's happening today with the situation in when I uh, when I uh, edited that book in 1999. It's worse in almost every respect today. Hmm. I know this is an impossible question to answer shortly, but what accounts for that? Oh, I think that I think the main thing that accounts for that is that is that generally speaking, people don't care. They don't care about poverty. And they blame the poor for their poverty. Uh, This is absolutely the case, and it has been the case for decades and perhaps centuries. I've just uh, written a book about to be released on poverty in Britain, looking back over 800 years, 
And uh, it is a constant theme in that book that people uh, uh, blame the poor for their poverty. They hate the poor. They fear the poor. They punish the poor. Uh, uh, that is the case here in Winnipeg, and that's a big part of the explanation for the fact that the poverty continues to continues to get worse. Governments are not prepared to take the actions that have to be taken to solve poverty because they don't think that there's going to be any public support for their taking those actions. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned the book that is coming out. It's called Scoundrels and Shirkers and is slated to be out in May, if I'm not mistaken. How did that book come to be? That book came to be because for a quarter of a century, I focused on Winnipeg's inner city and the uh, a central theme of the work that I was doing was the, the community-based organizations that have arisen in Winnipeg's inner city and that do fabulous work. And I've been... Uh, a huge exponent of the work of those community-based organizations, a wide variety of kinds of such organizations, youth organizations, women's organizations, indigenous organizations. There's many of them, and they're highly skilled here in Winnipeg. Uh, And yet, despite their skill, uh, the poverty just keeps grinding on. And so I wanted to try to figure out um, by looking at Britain, which, you know, our, our welfare system here in Canada uh, is modeled uh, to a considerable extent, very considerable extent upon the British experience. I wanted to try to figure out what had been done there. Uh, and I, you know, what I what I conclude in that book is that as terrific as uh, these local level community-based initiatives are, they are not enough to overcome uh, poverty. We need broad, universal social programs if we are seriously going to tackle uh, poverty. And generally speaking, there is not an appetite for those kinds of initiatives. So that's why I. It was really my curiosity. It was a. It was a. You know, um, people working as professors in universities ought to be intellectually curious, and that book is certainly a product of my intellectual curiosity. It took me out of Winnipeg's inner city to try to see a bigger, you know, to take a bigger look at uh, at the problem of poverty. Yeah, in my own writing and, and projects that I'm working on right now, I've been struck by just how much the concept of universal access to certain programs has completely vanished from common conversations. And so I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on that. In the neoliberal period, you know, starting in in the early 1980s up until we are today, why did universalism vanish in in place of targeted uh, needs based programs that so many governments of all stripes have favored? Yeah, it uh, I agree. It uh, universal programs have largely uh, vanished. I deal with that in uh, scoundrels and shirkers. Um, I mean, the the corporate community in Britain and the Conservative Party in Britain from the 1950s targeted universal programs because they they wanted n- more narrowly targeted anti-poverty programs, if anything at all. Uh, and of course, poverty programs are poor programs. 
there are programs that you know don't produce the solutions that the, that they would uh, uh, that are needed. But I think the 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 key thing here is that universality was targeted and opposed by establishment figures. That has been the case for you know more than half a century, certainly in Britain, as evidenced by uh, uh, scoundrels and shirkers. Um, you know, it universal programs, it seems to me, are an expression of social democracy. Social democracy has taken a pounding uh, in recent decades in Canada and across the world. And a part of that pounding has been the erosion of uh, the, the, the erosion of universal programs. I suspect I, I know what the answer to this might be. But when you look at where Manitoba is right now and Canada more generally, how optimistic are you that we will be able to stop the trends that have been getting worse over the last several decades? I, I don't like to say this publicly, but I'm not optimistic. Uh, I think, um, you know, in a in a broad sense, things are things are getting worse. Um, you know, climate change is a major issue that we seem not to be prepared to deal with as it has to be dealt with. Uh, we have, you know, the remarkable phenomenon of fascism emerging in the United States of America. Uh, you know, the rise of the far right uh, is a major, major uh, issue. Um, if you look here in Manitoba at a local level, as the result of 40 years of neoliberalism, our and, and the result more specifically of a completely inept conservative government since 2016 here in Manitoba, our healthcare system is seriously eroded. I mean, seriously eroded. Uh, our educational system, all aspects, all levels of education has been eroded. So that if an NDP government were to be elected in October, as I expect, uh, it it will be. They're going to have a heck of a problem uh, addressing uh, poverty uh, because it's going to take everything they have to to over time try to rebuild uh, the healthcare system, rebuild the education system. There's not going to be anything left to, to deal with poverty uh, problems. So, I just with all of the all of those things, I'm not optimistic. I'm afraid. Well, I can't ask that question, though, and not follow up with where are the emerging movements that do give you hope? Uh, what are you inspired by right now? And what do you think is really exciting? You know, I was like so many people, I was inspired by Bernie Sanders and continue to be inspired by him. There are here in Winnipeg, which I know best, uh, some groups of young people who are, uh, you know, bright and effective and doing really good things. But it's almost a cliche to say, well, you know, there's, I'm, I'm impressed by young people and, you know, they are our future and so on and so forth. Because 
there's all kinds of young people involved with, you know, the very, very harsh right-wing conservative party here in Manitoba as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are beacons of hope out there. I'm aware of that. But I think that they're overwhelmed at the moment, as far as I'm able to see anyway, by the forces of darkness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're writing about poverty and these kinds of struggles, you are taking experiences that other people have or experiences that you've witnessed, and you're trying to get them into something that makes sense on the page. What's your process for going about writing experiences into something that uh, that remains alive on the page? Well, I read a lot. I read a lot about broader kinds of issues and about poverty broadly and theories of poverty and so on. And I, you know, I have worked on the ground in the inner city. So I try to bring together, you know, that on the ground experience with the broader theoretical understandings of uh, of poverty. Also, I'm keen to try to find a way to have people who are experiencing poverty uh, be heard, to use their voices. And I have done that a great deal in the work that I've published with Fernwood. So oftentimes I'm, you know, I'm uh, interviewing people, uh, recording their voices, using that in my descriptions of what's happening and explanations for why it is happening. I think that brings an authenticity to the work and it brings, you know, a liveliness and some sort of local color to, uh, to, what, I, uh, to what I write. Uh, and I try to write in plain language as well. I'm, I'm, I try not to use abstract, uh, convoluted theoretical language. And do you have the opportunity to bring uh, this uh, back to the people who you quote? Do you get to read with them or do you celebrate the books when they're launched with, the, with these folks? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm keen on that. And, you know, that's a part of the sort of participatory research methodology that I use and that many of us here in Winnipeg now now use. So I work with people in the community. Uh, I take what I have uh, written and published back to the community. Uh, You know, I then build on that work with the community it's very, very much the way I work, very much a collaborative process with people in, in various inner city communities. Yeah. I have a bunch of rapid questions for you. But before I get to those rapid questions, and I've been asking everybody those questions, I have also been asking everybody this question, and it's probably obvious why. Why is radical publishing so important? We're overwhelmed by the profit orientation and the individualism of today's capitalism, neoliberal capitalism. And so that most publishers are not particularly interested in publishing progressive work. Uh, I think it's exceptionally important that there be Canadian publishers, for one thing, uh, and more Canadian publishers who are prepared 
to consider publishing critical works. Fernwood, Fernwood does that in an admirable way, in, in my opinion. And, you know, I mean, if you think about what I, I've spent my life uh, working in uh, the you know, in a university setting, uh, many, many students use Fernwood publications. Uh, radical, uh, radical explanations of day-to-day uh, -day phenomena that we experience here in Canada. Um, I mean, to have an alternative voice, to have a publishing house that's prepared to put out a different way of seeing how the world works is exceptionally important, it seems to me. Otherwise, we would simply, you know, be overwhelmed by the dominant points of view and by the rising right-wing points of view. Mm -hmm. All right, time for some rapid-fire questions. So the first question is actually two questions mashed together. Where is your favorite place to read and where is your favorite place to write? My favorite place to read is in crowded coffee shops for some reason. I like to get away in a coffee shop where there's lots of people and lots of noise and I just seem able to read like crazy there. So I, I do that. Um, my favorite place to write is at a cabin that my family has owned for about 30 years. And uh, uh, we are there in the summers and I have a little desk in the corner and I write there from about six in the morning till about noon. And uh, my grandchildren are running around and prior to them, my children running around and making noise and playing and they, uh, they it doesn't bother me. I keep right on going and they know that uh, if I'm allowed to do my work until noon, then I'm free to play with them in the afternoon. So uh, uh, that's my favorite place to write. Oh, that sounds just lovely. What books are on your to read pile right now? I've just, uh, let me tell you what I've just finished reading, like literally, um, Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead, which is a, a novel that sort of reimagines Charles Dickens' uh, David Copperfield. It's really a powerful look at the impact of poverty and the opioid crisis in uh, Appalachia in America. Uh, and I've also just finished reading a book by um, a guy named Desmond. Uh, it's called Poverty by America. And he's the guy who recently wrote the best book on housing that I've ever read, titled Evicted. It's just a remarkable, uh, remarkable book set in Milwaukee. Um, and he's now written, just published this book called Poverty by America, which is uh, uh, also uh, very, very good. Um, and I am about to read Edwidge Danticat, The Dewbreaker. Um, that's, I'm reading that book while I like her work but also it's the next book in my book club. A group of six of us, six guys, 
we've known each other for 60 years, and we have a book club that we've used for about the last 25 years as a means of staying together and staying in, in touch with each other. And so Edwidge Danticats, The Dewbreaker, is the next, uh, the next book. She's quite wonderful. Mm, and that uh, For Poverty by America, that is Matthew Desmond, for anybody who wants to check that out. Yes. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? Well, I'm not sure that I'd call it a ritual, but when I'm writing, I write best early in the morning, and I kind of get into a groove. And uh, my late wife used to laugh at me saying that I had an obsessive personality. So when I get into a book that I'm writing, um, I'm anxious to get up in the morning and start writing again. And uh, it just becomes a cumulative sort of process. If I can have my time in the morning to write, then... Uh, typically I can get stuff done and I'm a happy person. What is a book that either changed your life or had a big impact on you? Um, I don't think any book changed my life. I remember many decades ago, The Jungle was a novel that had a big impact on me. And then in the, in the 1980s, William William Julius Wilson, American sociologist, wrote a book. I think it's titled The Undeserving Poor. And uh, that had a big impact on me as well. That, that, you know, was just as I was beginning to become interested in poverty in, here in Winnipeg and interested in writing about it. And that book had a big impact on me because it had a very, very local micro level focus together with a bigger picture kind of context. So uh, it was good. Yeah, that was a significant book for me. Mm, And speaking of two read piles, I have to say the jungle has been on my two read pile for about two years. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I, every every time I'm like, now is the time for fiction, something comes up and I'm stuck reading nonfiction and can't get to it, but um, I will get to it someday. Uh, the last question that I have for you is, who is someone that you look up to? There's lots of people that I look up to. I look up to people who are active in the community, trying to build a better world, trying to change things in a positive way. And there are, you know, there are many such people right across the country and certainly here in Winnipeg. And and I admire them. I admire their uh, dedication. I admire uh, their organizing skills. I admire their intelligence. Um, so I wouldn't single out any any one person, but rather would sort of single out that category of people who are on the ground working to build a better world. Now, by my count, you've written or edited 12 books for Fernwood, and forgive me if I'm off by one or two. Where can people get copies of these books? Well, in, in public libraries, certainly, uh, often in university uh, libraries as well. Or I believe they could go to 
the Fernwood Books website and order books uh, in that in that way as well. Wonderful, Jim. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nora. You've been listening to my conversation with Jim Silver as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. 30 Wood is a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Check out Harbinger's radical left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Many intersectional layers to you. Nothing we haven't been through before. They stop me at the border. Call me a foreigner because I question why they slaughter.